This evening we are going to be continuing on a a three-week series, and this is the last week of three weeks, uh, looking at uh, the church and who we are, the church who we are. Really, this, I started this series for two reasons. One was because I, I wanted us to capture something of the, the beauty of the church, something of the, the, even the glory of the church. And we, I'll unpack that in a moment, what I mean by that. Um, but second of all, because obviously most of us here consider grace our family. And as we look at the vision that the New Testament has of what the church is, I want us to be provoked by that. I want us to see the vision of what Paul has for the church and say, and almost to ask ourselves the question, like, what, is this true of our life is, together? Is this, is this our life together? And actually, how can we make this our reality? So uh, the first week, two weeks ago, we looked at um, the church as one new man, one new humanity, how the dividing wall of hostility had been broken. Uh, people from every nation had been combined into this new humanity, uh, the people of God. And uh, we looked at lots of different ways, implications of that. Uh, then the following week, we looked at the church as the temple, this holy place where the people of God have been made holy by what Christ has done, and then they're growing into the holy people of God, the people that God has called them to be. And this week, we're going to look at the, the, what I think is often, I think it's, you can make a fair argument, is probably one of those prominent images in the New Testament for what the church is, and that's the church as the body, the church as the body, the body of Christ. We're going to look at probably the passage that... Um, demonstrates that whole idea and where Paul really interrogates that idea for us. So if you want to turn uh, to page 1,676, if you've got a church Bible, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to unpack uh, this image of the body. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12 to 31. For just as the body is one and has many members, many parts, And all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to a body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various types of kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess the gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? 
Do all interpret. Those are rhetorical questions you're meant to answer no to. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for the, the beauty of what it means to be part of your people. Help us to recapture something of your vision for our life together as a people of God. Help us to understand what it looks like to relate together, to love each other, to walk in humility. Help us to to grasp your vision and help us to live it out, empowered by your spirit. Lord, thank you that this is a a reality which you you have won for us. You've formed us into this body already and your spirit is is growing us together, growing us in love, growing us to become more like you, Lord. Help us by your spirit to live this reality out and to hear it now, to, to, to take it in and to respond to it personally. Amen. So why do we need to look at this? Well, I think we need to look at this uh, picture, really, for three reasons. The first which is, I think many of you would lack something of the vision of the idea of the church as a distinctive community. What do I mean by that? I mean, if you're coming in from the outside looking at church, many of you will think, well, isn't the church just like any other club or society, any group of people who have a shared interest? You say, isn't the church just like that, that the people who've gathered together around something they have in common? Well, actually, I want to suggest to you that the vision that Paul is giving in this passage means that the church should look radically different to any other kind of community. He's talking about radically different relationships, talking about a kind of humility, a service of one another, a sense of unity that is, I think, unparalleled. So actually, you need to step back and just see how how different the church is meant to be. And that that goes for us who are part of the church. It also means it goes for you who maybe are looking in and say, isn't this just like everyone else? I want to show you that actually Paul's vision of the church is very different. Second of all, many of us lack something of a, a vision for the beauty of the church. What do I mean by that? Well, I think obviously there'll be some of you who are kind of a bit resentful, maybe a bit cynical about the church. Maybe you've grown up in the church and you've seen some harm done in the name of the church. But most of us are probably just a little bit meh, you know, like not really bothered, like kind of, probably didn't enunciate that correctly, but you know what I mean. Uh, There's a sense of just kind of, yeah, take it or leave it. The church is a thing, but it's something I go to, but it's not really very beautiful. Actually, the, the visions that Paul gives us for the church are meant to images that are meant to evoke great beauty. Think about a bride prepared for her groom, dressed in her splendor on her wedding day. Think about the, the holy temple. Think about St. Paul's Cathedral, or any kind of large, beautiful architectural building that you might have been to. And think about when you come in, that sense of awe and grandeur and majesty and beauty. That's what you're meant to feel when you look at the church. They're meant to see the beauty of what Christ has formed together. Many of you say that's exactly the opposite of what I've seen in the church. But I want to show you that as we unpack Paul's vision for the church, the relationships, the way the body operates together, actually I think you'll see something profoundly beautiful. Finally, I think the reason why we need to look at this is because it challenges our consumerism. We live in a consumerist culture where we consume entertainment and uh, products and experiences. We are often put in the position of someone just receiving and consuming. And convenience has become kind of one of our, our key values as a culture. 
as a result. And, and we take that consumerist identity and way of doing things and we, we kind of impose it on the church. What that means is we look at the church as a kind of spiritual cinema, like a place where we're going to kind of be stimulated and engaged. And, but, but really, what do you do at cinema? You, you, you passively watch, you, you engage and enjoy, but you're not actually participating. Actually, we need a much more communal vision of church. I think of church a little bit like a, a do-it-yourself wedding. If you've ever been to one of those weddings, we, we had a wedding like this, where we, we had 10 ushers and 10 bridesmaids. We, we liked them, but we mainly recruited them so they could be an army on the day to help us do the wedding. You know, it's kind of do it on the cheap because you've got all your friends helping you. And, you know, you've got a massive 30-page plan. Well, we did, but I'm sure you don't if you did this. Um, but, you know, every, like 11.04, the ushers got to move the chairs here and, you know, all that jazz. And, and it, what is, it's kind of a picture of this idea of this group of people coming together, making something beautiful. Of course, actually, probably that image doesn't even fully grasp what the church is meant to be because it's not an event. Actually, what Paul's talking about is a, a network of relationships, a community of people building each other up in love. So we're going to look at three principles, three threads running through Paul's description of this idea of the body of Christ. We're going to look at the idea of the church as a united body. We're going to look at the humility at the center of that unity and we're going to look at what that looks like in practice, our call to serve the body. So first of all, you are a united body. You've got to understand the context that Paul's speaking to. He's, the Corinthian church is a deeply divided community. This is all the way through the book, uh, right in chapter 3, talks about how they've divided. And uh, some are saying, I follow Paul. Others are saying, I follow Apollos. It's a kind of, become a kind of factional group where they've picked their leader and they've kind of squaring off against each other. Or you've got, um, later on, there's a dispute about whether they will um, eat meat, sacrificed to idols. And some are deeply opposed and others are in favor of it and they're divided. And, and in this passage, actually, Paul is really tackling a division which has arisen over the idea of the spirit spiritual gifts. The whole of chapter 12 to 14 really focuses on this idea of the spiritual gifts. And you see that right at the beginning, verse 1, uh, chapter 12, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers. And what it is, is these spiritual gifts, they're intended to be gifts from God that strengthen the community, that as different people have gifts, they bless and, and build up the body. But instead of that, these gifts have become a source of division, such that, and particularly in, in this instance, talking about, there's a, a good argument to be made that the, the gift of tongues has become the source of division. And what he means by that is that, that um, this gift of tongues, if you're not aware, it's a kind of private prayer language inspired by the Spirit. And, and what's happened is that in this community, they have started to value this gift above all the others. And those who speak in the gift of tongues are kind of viewing themselves as a kind of spiritual elite Kind of like, we're the real deal. You're only the real deal if you can speak in tongues. And of course, some of you, there's Pentecostal churches today that would make that kind of claim. They would say, you're, in fact, they might even claim you're only a Christian if you can speak in tongues. And, and Paul is speaking to, directly to this sense of disunity that has arisen around the spiritual gifts. See, Paul is speaking directly to that disunity and saying, actually, no, you've got it totally wrong. These gifts that have divided you are meant to unite you. That you are a united body together. Think about the picture of a body, a, a living organism, each person p playing their part. So it's really a picture of unity. Uh, someone spoke to me this, evening, uh, this afternoon, reflecting on, on this picture uh, after we had unpacked it this morning. He said, it's a little bit like uh, what bi biologists call a superorganism. And what it is, is think about ants or bees or, or, or termites. And, and these, uh, obviously, each one of them is an individual unit, an ant on its own. But together, biologists will describe them as a superorganism. Why? Because they don't exist in isolation. 
They only exist as part of the whole. Bees can't survive away from the hive. That they, they, as much as they're individual bees, actually together, they are one superorganism. And that's a little bit like this picture of the body, saying actually you are all one together, one living organism. In a sense, you, your life doesn't make sense outside of the body. So that's the picture that Paul's giving them, and it's a picture of profound unity. Let me give you a few ways that it expresses unity. First of all, Paul is is describing a unity in diversity. He's saying, look, you're really different, but actually that you have a deep unity in that difference. In um, verse 15, he says, If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that that would not make it any less a part of the body. Think about that, that. What he's describing, what he's speaking to there is a, is a sense of uselessness, a sense of um, not belonging because you're not like everybody else. And of course, we, we might feel that for all sorts of reasons. You might come into a room and think, wow, everyone in this room is really, uh, really intelligent or really attractive. I, I could never make the kind of contributions people are making. Or maybe if you go to a life group and everyone sounds really wise, you might feel this. Or, or maybe you just walk into a room and think, oh, that sounds really attractive. I don't really belong here. I've got nothing to contribute that sense of compar- negative comparison that makes you feel like you don't belong. And Paul is speaking directly to that sense in this passage, saying, actually, that has no place in the body of Christ. Why? Because one of the very central principles that he describes is that everybody has a place in the body of Christ. Everyone has a, a part to play. Everyone has a contribution to make in this body. So the different gifts are celebrated. That means there's no room for superiority in this body of Christ. Paul is clear that the weaker members of the community, those people who you might want, really wish weren't part of the community, actually they are indispensable. In verse 22 he says, On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. Isn't it saying they're not just essential? Actually, in some way, they're treated with a greater honor and dignity, a greater esteem, despite the fact that they're exactly the people you'd really rather wish weren't part of the community. Now, this sense of superiority, this sense of looking down on one another that Paul is speaking to challenge, well, actually, if we look in our context and our world, we know that that sense of superiority is, is universal. People do it on personality characteristics. Maybe, you know, you're part of a team and you're the really organized person and there's someone who's a bit more of a creative, free spirit and you just end up thinking, oh, why can't you just be more structured and planned and organized like me? That's never, no one's ever said that to me. Um, or, or maybe you're one of those more creative people. You look at the organized person and you say, why can't you just be a bit more relaxed, a bit less, you know, structured and, and nailed down and allow your creativity to flow? Or maybe the extroverts look at the introverts and say, why are you so quiet and lacking in personality? Or why do the introverts look at the extroverts and say, we're not, we're not say- I'm not saying that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Naomi, my fellow extrovert, is, is related. No, um, we, we don't endorse that sentiment. Um, or the, the, uh, the extroverts, or the introverts are saying to the extrovert, why are you so bubbly and loud and, and full of personality? Or whatever they might say. <laughs> um, we'll have to ask them later. The, the, the point is, it's... it's um, it's human nature to take the gifts that we have and end up elevating those gifts and looking down on those people who, don't, who aren't like us. And we saw this two weeks ago and we talked about the reality of racial prejudice and, super, and the sense of superiority that, that is often driven 
So racial prejudice is often driven by that same sense of superiority, like, like that wish. Why, why are you not like me, essentially? See this in companies, different departments that, you know, I used to work, lead a sales team and, uh, we, and I was a tech startup, so we'd, we'd build product and, um, and, and the sales team would blame the product team. They'd say, oh, the, you're not making the right product that can't sell to our customers. And the product team would blame the sales team and they'd say, I wish you were giving us the right requirements. That sense of, of superiority and blame is so normal. And yet Paul's saying the church must be radically different. Actually, instead of looking down on people who are different to us and saying, actually, like, kind of with a sense of superiority. Actually, rather, we're celebrating the gifts as part of the body of Christ. There's, there's leadership, there's authority, but there's no sense of superiority. What does this mean for us? What does it practically, how does it work its way out? It means we run towards those people who we might otherwise not do that to. What I mean is every church is going to have people who are slightly, a little bit weird, or maybe um, those people who you wouldn't naturally gravitate towards. Maybe some of you are coming from the outside looking at church and saying, why does church seem to have a few more unusual people than maybe, maybe you might have had that experience you go to church and you say why is this place full of kind of and it's the reason is is because the church is a place that never rejects those people that never says you have no place here think about it, we live in a culture which is so often kind of running on on a performance mentality where we where we assess people and then based on those criteria there are winners and losers and there are people who are insiders and outsiders and the church is never like that we run towards those people who might consider weaker or, or kind of lesser members of the body and say, no, you're indispensable to us. Paul's saying, you can't say, I have no need of you. They're an indispensable part of the body. It means we don't create subtle hierarchies. We don't uh, kind of create an in-crowd and an out-crowd or, or a spiritual hierarchy. You say, well, this is really where the action is. These people are really love God and everyone else over there, they're just kind of the chaff in some way. We rejoice in our differences and recognize that actually those differences make something of the beauty of the body of Christ. It means we don't value some gifts higher than others. Some churches will, will look at certain spiritual gifts and, and say that's where the action is. Churches might say you know, prophecy or healing or words of knowledge. That's, those are the really cool gifts and we just kind of forget the rest. Or other churches might do the opposite. They might say teaching really matters and everything else is, is not really uh, as important. I want to say, actually, no, we, we pursue all the spiritual gifts, that every one of them, and all the lists and here in Romans 12 and, and Ephesians 4, we say, actually, every gift is part of the, is part of the picture, and we, and we eagerly desire it because of our love of Scripture. So it talks about a unity and diversity. It also talks about a unity in dependence to each other. And see, Paul is directly speaking to challenge a, a certain sense of proud independence, You see in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the hand to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Paul is reminding them that they depend on each other. You can see the absurdity of the picture that Paul is painting here. He's saying that the hand might cut itself off from the body and somehow seek to survive on its own. Just think what happens when you cut off the hand? It dies. The point is he's saying actually if you separate yourself out from the body, you die spiritually saying you actually, you need to be part of the body. You can't just attach yourself to the head in some way, to Christ. If you attach yourself to Christ, you are part of the body. You're part of this unity. Saying you cannot do the Christian life without the people of God, however much you might want to sometimes. See, individualism comes very easy to us. 
It's, in some ways, it's the path of least resistance. The easy thing to do, not to invest your life with other people. I mean, not least, it's, it doesn't involve risk. You know, when you, invest, when you want to reach out to people, you want to say, do you want to hang out? Do you want to invest? Do you want to deep, deepen your relations with people? It's a risky business. People might reject you. Or it's, it's less effort because people won't, if you're on your own, if you're individually doing life, no one's challenging you. So in some ways, it's the easy thing to do. And of course, we live in a world full of connectivity, full of different social media that won't give the illusion of, of deep relationships, but actually we're living individualistic lives. And yet Paul is saying that's not how you've been built. You are not an individual unit on your own. You're part of this body. This is who you are. You're only part of the picture. I think this has a couple of implications. One is it changes your narrative. Many of us have a narrative of our lives. We think about where we're going, where we're headed, what we're doing. You can kind of imagine like we've got a kind of uh, a film in our mind of what our life is about. And who's the central character of that narrative that we're building about our lives? We are. You are. You're the central character of your narrative. And what Paul's saying is saying actually in a way to just see your individual narrative is to miss the bigger picture. Think of it instead like a tapestry, and each person is just one thread in the tapestry that in the big grand scheme of all of human history will look back and look at uh, what God has done throughout history, and your life will just be one thread as part of a bigger tapestry. And the, the danger is if you just focus on that one thread, you miss the bigger picture. So it should challenge any individual narrative we might build. But it also talks about, it, it pushes us into this theme again of communal spirituality. What Paul's saying is you can't detach yourself. If you, if you don't stay attached to Christ, sorry, if you, if you want to stay attached to Christ, if you want to abide in him, you need to stay attached to the body of Christ. And I think we underestimate the risk of going in alone. What I mean by this? Well, in Hebrews 3, there's a warning here about what this means. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin what Paul is describing here is a kind of progressive picture saying actually if you allow sin to go unchallenged in your life if you detach yourself from the body of Christ actually eventually you end up hardening your heart and walking away from God let me explain. You start just by sinning. We all, we all sin. We all step outside of God's plans and rules and purposes, um, and, and we sin. But what happens next? Well, actually, because we've got hearts of flesh, because the Spirit is at work in our lives, because we, we've, we've been regenerated, reborn, we have, we, we have life in Christ, it means we feel convicted. We feel challenged. We, we feel aware that we've done, so, done something outside of God's plans. And at that moment, you have two options. One is to turn around and to repent and to, and to come back to God, or the other is to somehow justify, yourself, justify that to yourself, to make peace with what you're doing. And the reality is the human potential to justify, to lie to ourselves, talks about the deceitfulness of sin, the human potential to justify something that you know is wrong in your heart is, is incomparable. Think about uh, maybe you, you lose your temper at someone, you get angry in a meeting or something like that. Um, you might go away and look at it and say, no, I was just passionately making my case. I was just arguing for, for the right thing. I, I was on the side of justice. I was a, I was a, a kind of freedom fighter, fighting for justice. No, you got angry and you offended and you were not very nice to some people. That's what really happened. But you, you, you look at it slightly differently in your mind. Or maybe you're, um, I don't know what another way to put this, you're tight-fisted, you're not generous. But in your heart you say, I'm, not, I, I'm not, not generous, I just am a good steward of what I've been given. 
Or think about maybe you're um, taking steps towards a relationship that you know isn't right. And you're texting the person, maybe you meet up with them, and, and you know it's not right. But, in your, but you kind of say to yourself, no, I'm just being, just being friendly. I'm just, um, I'm just trying to show the love of Christ to this person. Even though you know it's not right. But you do it, to, you say those things to justify what you're doing to yourself. This, this is, as I say, the human potential to do this is unparalleled. What you need at that moment is a brother or sister to be able to challenge you and say, I know what you're saying to yourself. I know you're justifying that to yourself, but actually you've got it all wrong. Let me show you what's really going on. Like they're holding up a mirror and showing you reality. They're speaking the truth to you in love. So you need, we all have blind spots. The problem is we don't know what our blind spots are. We don't know what we're not seeing correctly. That's why we rely on other people to show us that. I think about this probably the most live issue in my life in this area is my relationship to work. I'm a pastor. I love my work. I love seeing people. I love doing all the things that being a pastor involves. Um, it's often, uh, I often overestimate what I can do and I can sometimes find myself overworking. What, and I'm not, you know, when you go to an interview and say, what's your biggest flaw? And you say, overwork. It's not that. I'm not, it's like genuinely, it's a bad thing because it means that I neglect the other responsibilities in my life. It's, it's not good. I have a bit of an idolatry of work at times. And then we'll go through it, and I'll, um, I'll work really hard, go through a busy period, and then Jen, my wife, will say to me, you know, you're working too hard. I'll say, no, no I'm not. We've, we've got our day off on Monday. That's, unpar- that's not being touched. And, and just, no, it's fine, it's fine. And then, and then another voice in my life says the same thing to me, and then another one, and another one, and another one. And, and eventually, and this only clicked for me, people have been saying this to me for the last few months, but it only clicked for me a couple of weeks. It took me a while to really hear the voices. But eventually I just looked around my life and was like, everybody in my life is saying the same thing to me. At that point, maybe you need to question whether, whether you're the one who's got it right or everybody else does. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but these are blind spots. These are things we don't see, and we need people sometimes, quite a lot of people, to say, uh, to say that to us. People who know your life, who know what's going on. You know, there's a danger. When we were going through this, I would, I'd meet up with my, uh, Pete, uh, leads worship in the morning, I'd meet up with him most weeks, and, and I would say to him on a few weeks, oh, you know, it's just a busy week. It's just, it's just a, it's unusual this week. And then after a while, you're like, I've said that to you every week. <laughs> like, this, this is, like when there's, a, there's a beauty about ongoing deep community where people actually know you, because then they really know what's going on in your life. There's such a danger in London that you uh, live in relationship and community with people, but, but because you don't see them very frequently, they don't really know what's going on. It's very possible that you can live in, in it'd be right at the center of church life, being uh, serving in teams and being involved in lots of relationships, but not actually living honestly and transparently. I think about a worship leader in, I think it's in the States, but I'm not sure, um, who just this week um, publicly, like prominent guy, um, talked about like real struggles in his faith on an, in an Instagram post. And um, one of the things he said was, we never talk about X. I was talking about judgment, I think it was. But, but he's saying, we never talk about X. Now, I don't, know, I don't know. It took the post down and everything else like that. But what was really fascinating to me was, here's a guy who's in leadership, in a, you know, it, lots of relationships in the church. And yet, he's saying, we never talk about X. And I wonder whether, actually, it wasn't that the church doesn't talk about those things. It's that he was saying, I, myself, am not in a context where I can talk about these things. There's such a danger that you could be right in the midst of community and not really living honestly, living, sharing what's actually going on in your life and, uh, and really opening yourself up to this kind of dependent relationship that Christ, that Paul is, 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 is showing us in this passage. So they're united uh, in dependence to each other. They're also united in sorrow and rejoicing. 
Paul talks about if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. They love each other so much, they're willing to enter into each other's sorrows. Just think about this and how, excuse me, how radical this picture is. Think about who do you, when uh, whose suffering makes you sad? Whose suffering makes you sad? So when someone, who are the people in your life, that if they suffer, you in some way enter into their suffering, that you feel their pain? It's your loved ones. It's the people you care about. They're the people who, who, who you feel a sense of compassion for. It's not just that you intellectually are aware they're going through suffering. We see lots of suffering all the time on the news, etc. But the suffering that we really feel is the people we love. The fact that they are willing to enter into each other's suffering is, is not least a mark of a deep love for one another that they have. Of course, love is the defining ethic of the church. By this, you will, they will know that you're my disciples, that you love one another. But they also, and I think this is actually more radical, they celebrate each other's success. They're rejoicing when one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think this is as countercultural. Think about how many times you've been in a workplace environment and someone gets promoted. What is the reaction? Now, okay, formally, publicly, people are saying, congratulations, well done. But we know under the surface, there are conversations in the kitchen or wherever where people are saying, I can't believe that person was promoted. What ridiculous. You know, there's not actually genuine celebration. They're not actually rejoicing when, that, when one person is honored. Quite the opposite. There's usually criticism and a sense of, of lack of justice. What's your reaction when someone shares good news with you that you don't share? What I mean by this is, say you're a single person and someone tells you they're getting married. What's your reaction? Sometimes you'll feel very happy for them, but sometimes you will find yourself uh, not happy, but actually kind of jealous or frustrated or even bitter towards them. Actually, it's very difficult sometimes to celebrate other people's success and other people's good news because of what it says about us or rather what it, what, what it, says, what it doesn't say about us. Actually, I think what we're really this is speaking to is the impossibility of this vision. It might sound an unusual thing to say. When we put it all together, this feels like a community like no other. A community where everyone is valued. A community where no one is scorned or looked down upon. A community where there's no sense of superiority. A community where they love each other and are willing to enter into each other's suffering and are so happy and willing to rejoice when one is honored. It feels impossible. And I want to say it should feel impossible because it is totally impossible without Christ's work in our lives, without his work in our hearts. Because at the very center, I think if you unpack each of these descriptions, it describes a kind of gospel humility that is not in our nature. It's quite the opposite of our nature. See, very, at the very center of all these things is a profound, radical willingness to, to lose yourself, not to think of yourself and a willingness to kind of forget yourself, and a a radical other-centeredness, a humility. A willingness to rejoice with others and and to celebrate their success requires you to take your eyes off yourself, that you're not secretly um, thinking, am I better than them? You've forgotten yourself. A a genuine sense of honor towards those who we might consider weak, who, who in Paul's word, seem to be weak, He's not actually endorsing the the claim necessarily. But a genuine sense of honor and dignity towards them requires a kind of humility in you that says, actually, these are people I could learn something from. 
Even to enter into someone's suffering requires you to go low. Requires you to say, I'm going to put your needs first. I'm, I'm not suffering right now, but I'm going to leave that aside. I'm going to enter into your suffering. That requires you to, to be able to say, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to put you first. It requires a humility. There's a community without comparison, without in the proud independence, without any sense of superiority. is a pr- community of profound humility. It should be no surprise to us when Paul talks about this in the parallel passages about the gifts. He emphasizes humility. He says, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing one another in love. Or in Romans 12, he says, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. Saying to serve, to serve, to play your part in the body of Christ, to minister in these gifts requires a radical humility. And to get inside what Paul's saying here, we have to look, what is biblical humility? I think this, this idea is really badly understood, almost to the point where you don't even want to use the word. Because we think of humility tends to be like uh, thinking, having a low opinion of yourself, thinking, oh, I'm just a worthless worm and I'm rubbish. Actually, that's not biblical humility. C.S. Lewis, uh, the Christian writer, uh, talked about this in his book, Mere Christianity. He said, if you met someone humble, you wouldn't go away from that time thinking, wow, they were really humble. Because actually, if all they did was spend all the time talking about how worthless and rubbish they are, actually, you'd think they were really quite self-obsessed. Actually, real humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's a willingness, and one writer put it brilliantly, uh, the willingness to forget yourself, to uh, the freedom of self-forgetfulness. There's a little tiny book by Tim Keller. It's amazing. Uh, the freedom of self-forgetfulness is on this um, idea. And they're saying to actually to live in this kind of community, to have this kind of unity, requires this kind of self-forgetfulness. But that's so hard because what he's talking about, the opposite of that, the pride is, that, that, that really runs against that, is so intrinsic to us. Again, pride is misunderstood. It's not just thinking, of, thinking better of yourself than you are. Actually, it's, it's deeper than that. The pride he's describing is a kind of human independence to want to... Um, establish meaning in your life, to establish purpose, to establish all these things without God. To put it another way, really it speaks to that very human intrinsic desire to be worth something, for our lives to be valuable, for our lives to mean something. This is a universal desire. And what he's saying is that by, when, we, when we feel that desire, the way we seek to satisfy that need in ourselves is by, com- is by establishing some sort of worth, some sort of value, you know, where, by achieving certain thing or by feeling like we've, we've done something better than someone else. That is the, the human nature. This is how Lewis describes pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition is gone, pride is gone. We all want to be worth something. We all want to be valuable. And the way we do that is by comparing ourselves to other people, by seeking to justify ourselves. By finding some way, some, some means of performance, whether that be our work or our success or our money or relationships or whatever, that tells us that we are valuable. In fact, it's the same reason, by the way, that we're devastated by criticism. Because, because part of our value comes from the approval or the, the what, how, what other people say about us. 
And you see, the only way to deal with this kind of pride is the gospel. The gospel enables you to forget yourself, to, lo- to, to, to discard this desire in each of us to want to justify ourselves. How does it do that? It does it two ways. One, the gospel says loudly and clearly that you have nothing to bring to Christ. It's like a, what we described a couple of weeks ago as a cannonball to our pride. It says, actually, no, we all stand, we all kneel before the cross in humility. That's one way. The other way the gospel does it is it gives us a new verdict, a new sense of righteousness, which, a judgment, as it were, which stands above all other judgments, all other means by which we might seek to prove ourselves. What do I mean by this? Well, Paul talks about this in, early on in um, 1 Corinthians. He says, I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. He says, I'm not judged by you or any other human court or even by myself. He's saying my conscience is clear. What he's saying is I have a judgment from God which stands above any other judgment. He's saying because of what Christ did on the cross, I've received a righteousness, a verdict of perfection. That means when God sees me, he sees Christ. That verdict that God has for me speaks louder than any other verdict, any other thing that we might seek to um, use to try and tell ourselves that we are valuable. Very simple terms. Because of what Christ did on the cross, you know once and for all that you are valuable in God's sight and you need not do anything else to try and prove yourself or justify your existence. And that that judgment speaks louder than any other, which means it gives you a freedom no longer to be seeking to... to, um, justify yourself to to establish your own worth by comparing yourself by feeling superior to other people or uh, feeling then you feel free to honor others because you're not worried about about what what it says about you you can just joy, have joy in what they're in their successes it means you don't have to compare yourself constantly worrying about whether you fit in or whether you meet the mark because you've already received a verdict which speaks loudly and clearly to that point so this community is no longer inconceivable because we've all received Christ's verdict for us. It gives us a new gospel humility. So then what does this mean for us? I just want to spend a few minutes on this. This this call then to serve one another. What does this look like in practice? Well, first of all, it says the church is growing to maturity. This is not a static picture where we're all just kind of a body together loving each other. Actually, there's a goal at the end of it that the church will grow up, will mature in Christ. In Ephesians 4, this parallel passage about the gifts, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. He's saying the goal is that we might grow into maturity, that we might become more like Christ, that we might not be people who are tossed to and fro by every uh, different teaching, might pull, easily pulled away from Christ, that we grow into maturity, that we look and become more like the people that God has called us to be, that we're walking in holiness, learning to to. Uh, follow God in every way, every part of our lives. But the kicker is that he wants to use you in the process. He goes on, says, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow, that it builds itself up in love. Saying each part of the body plays a part in building up the body in love. So this idea of maturity, it's not just that you as an individual are pursuing maturity as you, for yourself. Actually, you have a responsibility to build up the body, that we all have a stake in each other's growth and maturity. The church is not a spectator sport. It's a team effort. 
In fact, he says we're poorer without your contribution. If you're looking in, you're not part of the church. You might say, you know, will you care for me? Actually, we want to say, we're, we're poorer without you. We need your gifts to build up the body in love. It should shake us out of a passivity and a consumer mindset. It says you have a role in each other's maturity. Of course, we do this on Sunday. We play different serving teams to make this gathering happen. Because, of course, that's how we grow in maturity. But it's not just on Sundays. Really, it means that actually we're getting into the weeds of each other's lives. That we're helping each other to become all that God has called us to be. The reality is God uses people to shape people. Think about Paul, uh, the great apostle who writes this letter. Well, how did he get there? Well, he started by him uh, meeting God on the Damascus Road. But what happens next? God sends Ananias to go and pray for him that his eyes might be opened. Now, Ananias is like, no way, I'm okay, thanks. Like, isn't he the guy who, who murders or persecutes Christians? But God said, no, actually, I've intended. Your Paul becoming the man that he is going to be requires you to go and pray for him. And then later on, Barnabas gets alongside Paul and helps him and, 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 and vouches for him in front of the apostles. The point is that people build people. Think about this. The discipleship is caught, not just taught. So um, think about all different facets of the Christian life. You can read about them in the Bible. That's absolutely essential. But sometimes you need to see that truth embodied in people's lives. I think about my own life um, in thinking about what a godly marriage looks like. I, I, when I became a Christian, I, I hadn't grown up in a Christian family. And I hadn't had a particularly good model of marriage growing up. Um, and when I became a Christian, I was a disciple. I m- m- read the Bible with a guy called Rich, and he taught me so much. I was, I'm absolutely indebted to him. But I don't think he was intending it. But one thing he taught me was he taught me what godly marriage looks like. Just by living his life with his wife, of, of caring for her, loving for her, being patient with her, saying, look, actually, you know, she's having a tough day. We're going to go out and meet outside for coffee. Like, just the way he loved his wife showed me, put flesh on the bones behind the truth that I would read about in Ephesians 5. The husbands love your wife as Christ loved the church. He showed me what that looks like. Think about hospitality. Talk about the biblical command to, to, to be hospitable, to welcome strangers in. Well, you can read about it, but isn't it better to go and see it as well? To see what it looks like to welcome strangers, to see the power of what it means to how you show someone um, that welcome from God as you, en- as you invite strangers into your home and love them and show hospitality. That's why Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's not just words on a page. It's truth being absorbed and lived out. So let's get practical. Some of you will say, I have nothing to bring. I, this is not me. I've got, I can't be involved in this. I want to suggest to you, you can in a few ways. First of all, the gift of encouragement. Think about how important encouragement is. First of all, you can encourage people just by telling them what God's doing in your life. Just by sharing what God's teaching you, how he's shaping you, how he's answering your prayers. That alone is a great encouragement to me when I hear what God's doing in people's lives. You can encourage people by telling them what you can see God doing in their life. Sometimes it's very difficult to see that. Sometimes people are going through a difficult trial and they're just fighting to stay, to keep their head above water. As I try to run and forget the, the mixed metaphors. They, they, are, they are fighting. They can't see it. They, they, actually, you, they need you to come alongside them and say, I can see that you're persevering. I can see that God is growing this in you. I can see that you're learning this as you go through this. And, and that will be a huge encouragement. Life is full of um, things that will, will pull us down, uh, discouragements. Life is full of discouragements. We need each other and our encouragements. also talks about speaking the truth in love in that passage. Growing up to maturity by speaking the truth in love. That means a willingness to challenge each other. 
a willingness to, to speak the truth in love. Sometimes we hold back from speaking the truth in love because we think it's the most loving thing to do. Actually, the person you're loving when you hold back from that is you. You're loving yourself because you're saying, I'd rather not experience rejection. <laughs> I'd rather, so maybe you're actually not, you think it's not loving to tell them the, to speak the truth to them, but actually what you're trying to do is, is just get them to like you, essentially. And actually saying, no, actually, if you really love someone, you might take the risky step to speak the truth to them because you love them and re- even risk what they think of you. So it's a willingness to speak the truth in love. Also, they're probably going to hear it better from you than anyone else because you're their friend. What this all comes together is, imagine someone comes to faith. You see a number of people come to faith over the last year. And what you've got is a picture of different people playing different roles, using their gifts to teach that person. Maybe someone's reading the Bible with them, showing them how to apply God's word to their life. Someone else is praying with them, teaching them what it looks like to pray, how, how to pray. Someone else is inviting them into their home and, and modeling godly hospitality to them. So discipleship is a team sport. And we want this to be embedded into our culture. Those of us who are part of this church family want this to be part of our lives together, that we're building each other up in love, not just leaving it to some kind of leaders or, or, or paid staff. or whatever. Actually, it's part of everything we do together. This doesn't necessarily mean building lots of new relationships, by the way. It means changing the way you approach your relationships. So you've got deep friendship. I'm not saying you have to suddenly make loads more friends. I'm saying be intentional about how you approach those friendships. Actually think, how can I help my brother and sister to grow in Christ? Do we need to start praying together? Is there things I need to say to you? How can I encourage you? Actually, you're saying, I have a stake in your growth, and I want to play my part in that. So don't settle for social or superficial relationships. And finally, it says your gifts matter. So actually, you have gifts. You have, you've been, each part of the body has been gifted with something. So don't say you don't have gifts. You have gifts, and we are poorer without you. It means rather than your gifts being about you and somehow kind of puffing yourself up with them, actually, they're for our common good. So if you hold back out of fear or out of thinking, what will people think of me? Actually, we are poorer for that. It means probably seeking to discern your gifts. There's, I think it implies here that there is a sense to which you're, you're not... Of course, lots of these things are good things, like we all uh, want to encourage each other or we all want to share our faith. But there are, there are some people who have particular gifts in these areas and actually it's good to put, press in and focus on the contribution that God's called you to make according to your gifts. Paul says if, you know, if your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it's serving, then serve. So he's kind of implying that. So what does it mean to discern your gifts? Well, probably ask the people around you. Ask them, what do you see? Maybe, maybe create that kind of culture in your life group that you're calling out when you see people express gifts. Say, actually, no, you really led that study well. Maybe you've got a gift of teaching. So it's partly ask the people around you. Partly, where does your heart leap? Where do you get excited? What, where, where are you drawn to? And then finally, test it out. Get involved. Do stuff. See what happens. See as you, as you step out in that, whether that feels um, in, like, easy in some way. And finally... I think it involves manifesting the Spirit. Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit as manifestations. He's saying, actually, in some way, you are showing people the living God as you minister the gifts to one another. You're not just using your talents for the good of the body. Actually, you are, you're giving people a glimpse of the living God when you use these gifts, empowered by the Spirit. Think about the person who shows that gift of mercy. What are they are doing there? They're showing you, just giving you a glimpse of the mercy of the living God. Or that person who has a gift of teaching as they open up the truth of God. They're showing you just a glimpse of God's truth. Or the person who's got hospitality as they show kindness and welcome to the outsider. Actually, they're showing you something of God's welcome for us. So as you minister these gifts, you're not just 
earthly talents, actually you're showing somewhat people something of the living God. What an incredible privilege it is to minister to each other. So as we conclude, I think we must look to the heads of the body. That actually as we, as we live this kind of countercultural lifestyle together as a church, as we live in these beautiful relationships marked by a gospel humility, all of this points to the, to the head of the body, Jesus Christ himself. As we seek to, to lay down our lives in sacrifice for one another, we point to the one who laid down his life in, in the ultimate sacrifice. As we, point, as we seek to walk in humility, we walk in the manner of the one who is the most humble man who ever lived, who laid aside his majesty to um, come and humble himself by being humiliated on the cross. Or as we walk in sacrificial service to one another, we, we echo the great servant whose ministry was service, who washed his disciples' feet and ultimately served us by giving his life for us. So actually all of this points to Christ, points to the new creation reality where we're walking in humble service together, face to face with the living God. If you're not a Christian, you need to settle in your mind whether Christ is who he said he is. Is this vision of the church just a wonderful pipe dream for written 2,000 years ago or is it actually the picture of the ultimate reality that one day will be the case as Jesus comes back to judge the living and the dead. It all hangs and falls on the question of whether Christ is who he said he is. If he is who he said he is, then this is the most exciting thing in the world. And if you're a Christian, I think we have to ask ourselves, do, have we got, are we living out Paul's vision for what it looks like to be a community together? Are we walking in humility together? Are we loving the the weaker brother? Are we showing them that they're indispensable to us? Have we understood the gospel so much that we're willing to rejoice with each other? Are we walking in deep community where we're allowing people to speak into our lives, walking in this radical dependence? As we come into communion now, it's an opportunity to remind ourselves that all of this begins at Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That the reason any of this is possible is because Christ has died for us. That we have received a new verdict and that we have received the work of the Spirit in our lives. Forming us together, forming us into this new reality that we have become Christ's body. If there's any sense of inadequacy or sense that your lives don't match up to this, you must remember the blood of Christ shed for you. That you're washed clean. That you are part of this body. Whether this has been your reality or not, if you're a Christian. And instead, we want to just walk in this reality, walk in, in the ways that Christ called us to. Lord Jesus, we want to humble ourselves before you. We want to thank you that you have formed us into this body, that this reality is true now, that we depend on one another, that you've united us together despite all our different backgrounds and gifts and person, personalities, that we have become one body. Lord, that you've created us to uh, this new body to live together in humility and love. And as we do that, Lord, we want our lives to point to you, to recognize that you are the Lord and Savior, the one who sacrificed your life for us, who is the ultimate picture of humility. Lord, you're so grateful for your sacrifice. Would you help us to, to make this more of a reality amongst us? Would you come and work in us by your spirit? Come and remind us of your grace Come and speak to us as we worship you. Lead us in becoming more of the people you've called us to be. Thank you that you've washed us clean, that you've made us your holy people. We want to live that out. Amen.